Hello and greetings lovely listeners to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. As ever, I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and for those joining us for the very first time, welcome. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, it seems to me that as our societies here in Europe and similarly in North America become increasingly aware of conversations around race and racism, that the focus on whiteness provides some introspective focus and hopefully some direction in terms of how we can positively seek to affect change. So welcome to all you newbies. In this episode, I'm honoured to welcome writer, sex educator and author of Kunyaza, The Secret to Female Pleasure, Habib Akande. Habib was recently featured in the BBC documentary The Orgasm Gap, which explored the cultural differences of teaching sexual pleasure in the UK and Rwanda, East Central Africa. A well-travelled public speaker, Habib has given workshops on sex intimacy and sexology at leading academic institutions in France, Nigeria, Brazil, the UK and the United States. Habib has also authored books on race and religious history. First off, Habib, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Cool. So tell me, first off, what is a sex educator and how exactly did you get into this? It's a very good question. So a sex educator um, is basically someone who teaches sex, whether it's in the form of writing books, um, providing workshops, and writing short articles um, to help people not only not only the actual act, act of sex, but also um, areas to do with sex, like, for example, the concept of desire, helping individuals and couples awaken and sustain desire, especially in a long term relationship. And um, also sex educators, someone who might provide presentations to children um, about sexual health um, and STIs and things like that. So I mean, the sex educator title is quite broad because again, it can, it can manifest itself in very, in very different spheres depending on um, what type of work um, someone does. But for me, um, in particular, my work, my area of work as a sex educator is mainly in the realm of conducting research on um, female sexuality and the orgasm gap. Um, my main area of interest is female sexuality in the early Islamic world and female sexuality in, 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 in Africa. And I also undertake, which you mentioned earlier, some workshops um, on intimacy and sexuality for couples and individuals. Mm. And so you've been doing this for presumably many years now. Um, I, out of interest, how would you describe attitudes to sex and sexuality in the UK? I think there is still a reluctance to speak openly and honestly about sex. I think there is, um, I think attitudes are changing somewhat amongst millennials, um, but I think people are still uncomfortable about having um, open and honest conversation, like I said, about sex, especially in mixed gendered sessions. Um, so it's normally when I undertake workshops is either in um, just amongst men only or amongst women, or if I'm having mixed gendered workshops, normally the women are more interested about the topic, whereas a lot of men, um, maybe because of perceptions about sex being um, something that we're just naturally good at, we don't really want to kind of, a lot of men I find don't really want to, want to have a, want to open up and show their vulnerability and share their insecurities, especially in in environments where women are there as well. So men, I think, more would like to listen, whereas I think women are more uh, likely, to, from my experience, likely to not only listen and, and learn, but actively engage in discussions in terms of not only for themselves, but also they're interested in the topic of sexuality in other parts of the world and about different sexual practices and also obviously how can they um, improve their own um, not only sex life, but also how they can embrace their sensuality, because I think that's very important that that a lot of women, um, particularly in the West, I don't think I don't think they feel comfortable to own their sensuality. Uh, and where do you feel like that particular reservation, reserved sort of attitude to sensuality and sexuality comes from? I think it comes from in the UK. In the UK, it comes from our understanding about sex and sexuality being one for procreation and that stems from the Victorian Christian understanding about um, sexuality and morality. And I think that still um, is quite dominant in many people's understandings about sex. I think even even despite you know the sexual revolution which um, took place which started in the 1960s, I think there's still a lot of people, especially young people who are uncomfortable to be have open honest conversations about sex. It's seen as something that you do when you're drunk 
But in terms of actually speaking about it and speaking about your insecurities and your vulnerabilities, are not many people in the UK are really, um, they're more interested in speaking about love and romance, um, but sex itself, especially sexual pleasure and different types of sexual experiences, um, even like female ejaculation, um, multiple orgasm and things like that. I don't think many people are, are comfortable to have that conversation unless they're watching or learning about it um, in the comfort of their own home or watching things like porn, which for me is um, a lot of it is sex miseducation as opposed to sex education. But for many people, and especially young people's um, pornography is like the main source for them to learn or unlearn about sex. Mm. Well, I was actually going to ask you about that. So obviously, when we talk about sex in the UK, we're talking about inherited Victorian attitudes, which you mentioned a lot of the presumably lie back and think of England or whatever the expression is. Um, And then obviously porn comes into it as one of the main sources for young people learning or, as you say, unlearning um, about sex. Where else do people learn about sex? Where are our attitudes? Where's our understanding of what constitutes good or desirable sex coming from in, in the UK or in Europe, maybe? Social media now for many millennials, I think social media has become a a great avenue for people to learn about sex, about sexual pleasure, about um, sensuality. Um, And and even amongst friends, for some people, from my experience, many people learn about sex and sexual pleasure from from their peer group or porn, or even from Hollywood movies, to be honest. But from their families, not many people. When I ask the question that where did you learn about sex or what was your about your um, about sexual pleasure or how to pleasure your your partner, things like that, most people would either say porn or their friends or something that um, they've seen on a movie. And so I, I definitely think mainstream media does. Um, they're the biggest source after porn in terms of influence and, our, and shaping our attitudes about sex and. What is, and I think there's a lot of pressure, unfortunately. So there's a lot of pressure, particularly amongst, um, amongst young people, to engage in sex when they, they might not be ready, especially emotionally, and because mm. we live in a very performative, goal-orientated culture where people want to be seen to be having as much sex as their, as their peers. So if someone has sex by the age of 16, 17, it's kind of seen as like a goal, particularly mm. amongst um, young men. Um, to have to lose their virginity by a certain period and even amongst the number of women nowadays especially with the um, there's a lot of um, talk about women being sexually liberated but then I always ask the question what do you mean by being sexually liberated is that because that can come in many forms does that mean you have multiple sexual partners does that mean that you are monogamous does that mean that you're celibate but you are comfortable with your sexuality um, but for many people, when they think about being sexually liberated, it means to be promiscuous and have multiple sexual partners. And there are a number of women who maybe come from conservative backgrounds or they're just maybe not comfortable in having have, sharing a body of multiple people. They're under pressure that if they are not somewhat promiscuous or engaging with a number of sexual partners, they're seen as being prudish. So whilst we've escaped the Victorian attitude about sex and sexuality where we want to be more quote unquote liberated there's now more pressure on people who don't necessarily want to have multiple sexual sexual partners to have multiple sexual partners before they settle down it's seen as like you need to experience different people before you can have um, a committed relationship and I think that's something that a lot of people both men and women are suffering from. Mm, Well that's definitely what you get from you know TV series, movies, kind of popular culture isn't it? That's the seems to be the sort of um, omnipresent uh, perception of what constitutes the normal path um, for before you settle down eventually and are relegated to a a sexist marriage right which is where it all ends up. Um, So it's tongue-in-cheek, it's tongue-in-cheek. I I'm just wondering, obviously, the podcast is focused on whiteness um, and I'm and I'm interested to hear from you how you feel that whiteness manifests in this particular field and what you understand by the term whiteness. That's a very that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I think it depends on, on the context. So if you'd ask me when I think of whiteness, what do I think of? I just think um, it refers to people of European descent who are of fairing, who are fairing complexion. Um, if I'm speaking or I'm thinking about whiteness in the context of um, racial studies, it refers to 
the structure of like white supremacy or um, white people being the dominant culture. Um, so again, it, 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 it manifests itself differently depending on the context in the field of sex education and sexuality. Yes. Whiteness is definitely, um, I was going to say, yeah, it is a problem. And the reason why I say it's a problem because whiteness is a worldview. Mm. It's a perception generally based on Eurocentric um, and by Eurocentric, I'm referring to people who are also in the Americas or Australia of European um, ancestry, um, their worldview or their understanding about what is sex and sexuality. And when we look at um, sex education, particularly in the, in the UK, it does tend to centre white narratives and it does exclude um, brown and black people's sexual experiences. Mm. And this is shown in not only sexual studies where in most cases, most sex educators, sex therapists, and even the participants of majority of the major sex, um, sexual st studies are based on experiences of white people. And um, there is a cultural bias, which um, I think maybe there's a blind spot, which unfortunately many, even sex therapists, I don't think they are, um, they're aware, they're not aware that they racialize others, but they deracialize themselves. As mm. in when we look at the experiences of um, people of African descent or people of Asian descent and we and their studies conducted on people from that parts of the world it's seen as black sexu sexuality or Asian sexuality but whereas when we're looking at the experiences and studying the practices of people in um, America who happen to be of European descent um, that's just seen as sexuality so it's something that again wh whiteness is framed as being normative objective and scientific in western sex education whereas um, other like blackness or brownness if you want to call it that that's seen as that's otherwise and that's seen as um black sexuality like i said or 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 another unique um type of sexual practice or sexual behavior that we as white people or white sex educators need to understand and even maybe civilize um those people so i definitely think um whilst again for me personally even when we look at sexology which is kind of understood to be the study of human sexuality and it's considered to be objective I don't think it's I don't think it, I don't think it can ever be completely objective the same way I don't think a sex educator can be completely objective because even when you are reviewing um, and observing sexual practices when you're when you're collecting data you're you're doing it based on your own cultural understanding and, and morality which a lot of white sex educators fail to realize whereas when they're reviewing and looking at the works of black sex educators or sexologists from other parts of the world, they will speak about their own culture, their own culture, maybe they view this, they, they, they will devalue their findings. And that's something that I do find quite problematic, um, especially within the sex educators or sex sexual scientists community that um, they claim to not see race, but they see the race of their participants who are brown and black. So. Mm, that's really interesting. So, I mean, it touches on something that's come up a lot throughout the series, you know, the idea of whiteness as kind of universal, as normal, as uh, invisible in many ways to those who are also racialized as white. Um, and so when I say uh, normal and universal, I mean, that's how it's perceived by people racialized as white, not that it actually is. Um, so in terms of, of uh, there's so much to unpick from what you've just said, I'm really curious to hear from you about you know were the tables turned on figures that you're talking about you know the, the key thinkers and scientists of the world of sexology um who from what you're saying tend to be um the ones that are recognized tend to be white male and white um it, were we to turn the tables on them today and analyze how their racial biases might be coming into their analysis. How what what would be your verdict there? How how is that their racial bias impacting on their understanding of sex and sexuality? I think it's quite clear, and I like the phrase of turning the tables, and that's something which I do. Um, I do try to encourage when I'm speaking to people that when you're looking at even certain studies, you should look at obviously how it was compiled, who compiled it and the participants so with majority of like i said the major um sex um, human sexuality studies um that's been published in the last like 40 to 50 years the vast majority of the respondents are white now that's not to say that 
because the studies aren't diverse, like they're invalid. But we have to understand that when we're even looking at studying certain things, like understanding certain sexual practices and, and why is it that certain people, even if we're looking at pornography and um, the type of porn that certain people look at, that is, you have to understand that that's based on their understandings and their um, preferences or their sexual preferences. So if, you, if we were to say, for example, with pornography that, um, it was recently published that anime porn is the most commonly viewed, viewed type of pornography and that was a study um, looking at um, the viewing practices of people of white people in America and then you extrapolate that and say that most men watch anime porn you're doing a disservice to majority of non-white people non-white mm. men because that might not be the preference if that makes sense now not to say that again that study was um, inaccurate but it's the way it's reported mm. Because it mm. doesn't consider that that's looking at, or if you were, or for example, if you were to look at um, some of the founders of, of sexology, Alfred Kinsey, who is kind of seen as like from the U- United States, he was like the equivalent of Havelock Ellis from, um, from the UK, who's considered to be the father of sexology here. Mm-hmm. The latter was a eugenist. He believed in the inferiority of brown and black people. Mm. Um, Al- Albert Kinsey, um, Alfred Kinsey, on the other hand, a lot of his studies, he's, he, he conducted these studies um, about human sexuality, especially male sexuality, with men in prison. So, again, not only understanding that they're also predominantly white and they're in prison, but their environment. So, if you're looking at the sexual practices and trying to understand sexuality and sexual orientation and things like that with people that are in prison, and then they might be engaged in, for example, same-sex relationships more than someone, for example, who's not in prison, it's not surprising that if you did that study in in with men in prison and then you found out that maybe like 10% of people engaged in um, same-sex relationships, for example, but then saying that's the case for men in general, is that actually, is that fair? Or is that, is that, ju- is that, is that correct? That's, it's mm. just about not just checking the whiteness, but checking how they're compiling and how they're um, um, interpreting this data. That's what I, I try to challenge, ask people to challenge, because like I said, majority of the, uh, the founders of sexology and I don't really like to use the term sexology a lot. I prefer to use the term erotology. And the reason why, and I, and I differentiate between the two, is because sexology, as we know it to be, started in the 19th century in Western um, Europe. Mm-hmm. And the, the founding fathers, whether it's um, Alfred Kinsey, whether it's Havelock Ellis, whether it's Magnus Hirschfeld, whether it's Ivan Bloch, they were all white middle class men. And mm-hmm. a majority of them, and a lot of them were racist as well. Whereas the study of sex and desire, um, known as erotology, that was something that was studied since time immemorial. So mm. even with the Kama Sutra, the Perfume Garden, but because when Westerners and white people in particular started looking at like the Kama Sutra, the Perfume Garden that was written in, in like the 14th, 15th century in um, North Africa and the Ovid in ancient China, because they didn't consider these um, sexual observations, so to speak, to be scientific, they, and they considered it to be based on philosophical or religious teachings, which they dismissed. They didn't consider it to be a legitimate um, um, book about sexual studies. So for mm-hmm. them, again, it's like it's like they are centering themselves as that we just we started um, the studying about sex. We started um, discovering about the female anatomy. That like even the G spot that's named after a German man. That's quite problematic. That a part of a woman's anatomy is named after a white middle-class German man it's, it's things like that that again it's like whiteness likes to center itself where where the forefathers of um civilization where the forefathers of discovering sexuality where the forefathers of understanding um sexual pleasure and if in even the Kama Sutra which is quite funny that there were a number of books and sexual manuals that were written in ancient India and the Kama Sutra was one of many but mm. because the Kama Sutra was one of the books that was translated by um, Sir Richard Burton in the 19th century and then was um, translated and popularised in first in America and then in the UK, it became known as the, the world's leading sex manual because it went through white hands. Wow. While what... other sex manuals that didn't, didn't go through white hands, they're not kind of considered. Wow. So it does, is... so does, sorry. No, yeah, it's like the Christopher Columbus of the sex world. <laughs> right right and, and that's something that is just again it's like and, and even when we look at controversial practices like um or considered to be controversial practices again from even I have to be careful with the words I'm using because I think many times like I've been even the language has been colonized so when we say controversial it's controversial where mm. so the practice of um 
female um, um, ejaculation is seen as very controversial in the West because in much of the Western world it's considered to be urine, despite a lot of women saying it's not. Whereas in other parts of the world, it's considered to be sacred and it's considered to be a normal part of a woman's sexual experience. It's only when the West legitimizes this experience that women have, that's when it's kind of considered to be a normative practice. And again, it's that, that, for me, that's problematic because that everything has to come through the prism of white people, particularly initially it was white men. But now, even when we look at um, sex education, modern sex edu- education, it's now through the prism of white women. White women are now taking over what white the, the position that white men had in terms of sex and sex education. So as much as obviously we understand that um, in a patriarchal society that white men were considered to be obviously the forefront and it's, everything is about for the, the white male view, mm. the white female view is also considered to be universal and it's only their, their experience and understandings are considered to be the most important and then everyone else, like brown and black people, need to filter through their understanding. So if it's something that doesn't co- align with their understanding or their worldview, even certain um, women practices. So, for example, if a white woman in, um, oh, sorry, if a black African woman in um, East Central Africa um, undergoes some practices on her genitalia, it's considered, and I'm, and I'm not speaking about female genital mutilation here, I'm speaking about maybe, maybe elongation, for example, mm-hmm. that's considered to be barbaric. Whereas mm-hmm. if the same pra- procedure is conducted in America with a doctor for aesthetic pre- um, reasons or beautification reasons, that's considered to be cosmetic surgery and it's revolutionary. Mm. So, so it's, it's just, sorry, go on. No, so, so yes, yeah, so the, this question of the, the white filter um, legitimizing what is considered acceptable sexuality, like sort of in many ways giving us um, delineated boundaries that have been framed by what you know like you say white middle-class men from the 19th century thought of as acceptable sexual practices and now as you say kind of that that sort of being taken over by uh, presumably the new wave of, of feminists who are at the forefront of this conversation I'm really interested in coming back to like the example that you gave of, of female ejaculation, which, as you said, is considered to be quite a controversial con- conversation um, here. Have you got a sense of why it's considered to be a controversial conversation, let's say, here in the UK? Why does it make some people, the same people who might say male ejaculation without flinching, would, would find the term female ejaculation a bit harder to, to state, would they? I think because female ejaculation, like women's sexuality in general, is poorly understood in the West. And I think a lot of men, because, and I'm speaking historically, I'm using men generally, um, have not understood in the Western world female sexuality and, and have not appreciated it, because I don't think you need, necessarily need to understand everything um, before you can appreciate it. Because they haven't understood, they haven't understood that experience, they've dismissed it. So whereas there are many, when we look at, um, again, I'm speaking in the Western context, male sexuality, male sexual experiences, like you mentioned, ejaculation, it's never, it's legitimized and it's spoken about at length. Whereas even up until maybe the last 50 years, female orgasm was kind of seen, um, women were considered to be hysterical if they had an orgasm. And before Mm -hmm. then, women, um, in the Western world, um, women's desire was dismissed. Now it's, but now we've now, now white people have acknowledged that women have desire. They've acknowledged with the sexual revolution in the 1960s that women are entitled to pleasure. And recently they've acknowledged that women do experience orgasm. The next stumbling block, block shall we say, is female ejaculation, despite the testimonies of a number of women who say that they have experienced um, female ejaculation and they say that it's not the same as urine that's still dismissed by a number of men, particularly in the UK, um, sexual scientists, who consider it to be urine and um, something which is, and even funny enough in British porn, up until recently, I think up until last year, it was um, female ejaculation scenes were banned. Wow. So again, it's it's just, again, it's, I think it's a fear of the unknown for men. Mm. And even for some women, because not every woman will experience it, but because you don't experience it, it doesn't mean you should invalidate it because another woman has said that she's experienced it. For sure. And I mean, you've done research in this area, right? And so you've actually, did you go to Rwanda? Um, uh, And tell me a bit about, because obviously 
my sense from your book is well you've got written several books but is that you uh, there are societies where the approach to sexuality the approach to say in this case female ejaculation is completely different completely normal it's taught from generation to generation can you tell us a bit about that and 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 the different attitudes that you've encountered to it sure sure so um my latest book Kunyaza the secret to female pleasure which explores um the female ejaculation and squirting phenomenon in um Rwanda, East Central Africa, where um, female ejaculation is considered to be um, sacred and it's considered to be part of a woman's sexual experience, so much so that men are considered to be inferior if they're not, if they're unable to make their wives ejaculate. And it's just a very normative practice. Um, And it's something that um, is known as a sacred water. Um, And I was quite interested, not necessarily the technique in terms of how to make women ejaculate, but it's the culture surrounding it. Yeah. that you have a very um, female-orientated, pleasure-positive culture, and especially in Rwanda, which is a very small um, East, um, country in Africa. And then there are a number of the neighbouring countries which practice female genital mutilation, whereas in Rwanda it doesn't exist. So even looking at, and, and for me as well, as someone who's originally from West Africa in Nigeria, it was refreshing to hear about, again, a culture in Africa, which is, again, Africans are not a monolith, um, there's different, obviously, sexual practices, but you've got this practice where um, it's been um, taught for centuries by women to other women, and also men teaching other men as well that they should find the water, so to speak. They should help women experience um, ejaculation or the sacred water, they call it. And it's something which, um, again, it's, it's considered to be a normative, normal practice, the same way it's normal for a woman in the Western world, so to speak, to, 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 to orgasm. Um, and it challenged the many, many Western attitudes about female ejaculation and squirting. And even this major study, or the so-called major study in the Western world, which um, says that female ejaculation is urine, this study was only conducted, the, the, the sample size was only for seven women in France. Mm. And again, it shows the, the, the attitude of Westerners that, okay, you've got this study of seven women in France who, I think three out of the seven, um, they found traces of urine in their um, ejaculated, um, their vaginal ejaculated fluid. So because of that, they said that, okay, female ejaculation doesn't exist this, um, and it's urine, this is urine, despite the fact, like I said, that you've got hundreds of women who've given, who self-reported and said that the experience of um, ejaculation is very different to urine. Um, it doesn't smell like urine and things like that. And there are other ancient cultures like in the Arabian Peninsula, going back as far back as the seventh century, where they spoke about um, women's ability to ejaculate, and they spoke about even Aristotle. You know, some of the ancient Greeks spoke about um, they called it they called it female semen, but they were referring mm-hmm. to women and um, ability to, um, to gush fluid. Um, so again, for me, it's just quite interesting because there are many ancient cultures who spoke about um, this practice and spoke about it like as a normal practice and something that both women should seek and uh, men should obviously try and seek with their female partners. But for whatever reason um, in the Western world, particularly in the UK, because we we seem to be troubled by it and I just can't understand Mm. why. Mm. And I'm I'm very interested in picking up on what you said about, um, you know, the orgasm being something that's expected, you know, here in a way that maybe uh, talking about female ejaculation still taboo to some extent but we know from studies that actually uh, a lot of women are not orgasming and that there's this you know this orgasm gap as it's referred to in the literature I think that the statistics I found were around for only 40 percent of women um, who were ejaculating or not even ejaculating we would wish that for them but um, no who were uh, orgasming do, during sex whereas I think it was about 90 plus percent for men so there is an orgasm gap and I was curious as to whether in the research you've done you know whether it's in Rwanda or elsewhere that is there a, a focus on female pleasure is that more central in certain cultures than others and so to what extent could we say that you know is is whiteness as, a, as the structural whiteness of our society um, has many layers to it and many impacts is one of them, in your view, that it has maybe centred the male experience of sexuality? Most definitely. I think um, from the Western 
perspective or the whiteness perspective, sex um, is very is very phallocentric, as in it's all about the penis, it's all about penetration, and sex begins when the penis enters the vagina and ends when the man ejaculates. And that's very damaging because, as we know, that most women do not experience an orgasm via penetrative sex alone. Like some studies say only about 30% of women frequently experience um, orgasm via penetrative, penetrative sex alone. Whereas in many other cultures that were more female or pleasure positive or pleasure orientated, um, the onus wasn't on sex or orgasm. It was about female pleasure, which is more expensive. And so, for example, like with the kunyaza practice, which I spoke a little bit about earlier, it, 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 um, it's, the practice has to do with a man using his penis to stimulate the clitoris and the labia minora, but paying particular um, attention to the clitoris. And we know that, again, with recent studies have shown that most women require clitoral stimulation in order to orgasm. So, And it's a non-penetrative practice. I mean, you can do kunyaza involving penetrative sex, but it's generally a non-penetrative practice where the man uses, like I said, his penis to stimulate the clitoris. So you've got this ancient practice in Africa where it's focused on the clitoris, which which is probably the reason why a number of women in Rwanda are able to orgasm. Um, some reports say I think 80 to 90% of women frequently orgasm and ejaculate um, with the Kunyaza practice. And it's not surprising because A, um, most of their sexual activities focus around clitoral stimulation and B, women have given, because of the culture, have given themselves the permission to enjoy pleasure. And the act of sex is considered to be mutually, a mutually beneficial act. And there's onus placed on the man culturally to satisfy the woman. Whereas mm. in the Western world, there's a lot of onus placed on women to satisfy men. And sex, like I, like I said earlier, begins with when the man enters the, the vagina mm. um, and ends when the man ejaculates. Whereas if we understood sex or sexual pleasure and the focus was on ensuring that both parties are satisfied, irrespective of whether it's by way of penetration, whether it's by clitoral stimulation, whatever whatever enhances pleasure, I think that's the most important thing. But I think, and another thing is, which is quite troubling is that in the, because we are, I'm generally speaking in the Western world, the whiteness framework is, is, is we like to quantify things. So we like to quantify yeah. how many times did someone have sex. The scientific um, method, yeah. Scientific, the scientific, and that's damaging mm -hmm. because even with orgasm gap, is a woman can have a, a sex a pleasurable experience without having an orgasm there's mm. a lot of pressure unfortunately now placed on women to orgasm now there's even like the same with this pressure on place placed on women to ejaculate and it's not necessarily you need to ejaculate or you need to orgasm rather you should enjoy pleasurable sex however mm. that manifests itself and that's something that was um spoken about um frequently in other ancient cultures whereas in the western culture again because it's all about how we can measure how good you are in the bedroom, how great you are in the bedroom. The mm. only way we can measure it is by how many times you have sex, how long you last in the bedroom, how many um, orgasms you have and why we need to have women to orgasm, not because it's, it might be the most enjoyable experience for them, but it's so they can compete with men. And mm. I think, well, interesting. And, and, and that's the whole like, you know, the orgasm gap is like, in, if so if a woman has as much orgasms as a man, Therefore, she's a man's sexual equal in the bedroom when that's not necessarily the case. Because in um, like, for example, in um, there's a, a saying in um, in medieval in medieval Arab times where they said that um, sexual pleasure was created by God and it was divided into 99 parts, not into 100 parts. 99 of those parts was given to women and one part was given to, to man. And mm. that's something that is in a lot of traditional books by Muslim scholars. And that was also attributed to ancient um, Greeks as well as um, ancient Indian um, sex manuals. So this idea that sexual pleasure is the most important thing, that's something that I think we've lost in the Western world because we're focusing a lot on like orgasms and, and trying to quantify sexual experiences rather than focusing on, on pleasure, which is more holistic. Mm, interesting yeah so so it's something that also comes up a lot in 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 other episodes of the podcast where people talk about you know obviously when we talk about whiteness we're talking about a limiting framework which not only uh, overemphasizes perhaps the importance of certain figures but also limits our ability to understand the world in a much more holistic rounded way because we're missing out on huge swathes of knowledge um and and so i wanted to push you a little bit on on what you've learned um uh, you know 
researching your books. You, one of your earlier books is called Illuminating the Performance, African and Arab Erotology. It's described as a traditional guide for the modern male on womanizing and erotology. And it draws upon classic Afro-Arab love treaties dating back to the ninth century. Um, I think a lot of people in the UK would probably find it surprising that you would find sources on how to um, be a better uh, lover in ninth century treaties, um, particularly ones that might be written by Muslims. Um, so tell me, uh, and I say this as a Muslim myself, and I know you're also Muslim. Um, mm-hmm. So what 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 do you think people generally have misunderstood? Because I know that um, if you read people like uh, Joseph Massad, who is an academic uh, in America, he's written a lot about sort of how liberalism has constructed itself in opposition to Islam. So if if the if the Western world thinks of itself as liberal and uh, erotic and uh, free, then you know the Muslim world is all the opposites of that. Um, to to what extent have we been missing um, sources of wisdom which could allow everyone to have a better sexual experience if we dipped into them? I think a lot of people would be surprised as as I was when I first came across. Um, the rich Islamic tradition of um, sexually explicit material um, written by predominantly men, but um, nevertheless, there was a lot of, like in the early Islamic world, um, erotic Arabic literature and sex manuals were very popular. It was a very popular literary genre. And um, again, a lot of these works, which again, will be, which probably will surprise many modern day readers, is that they emphasize the sexual needs of women and also the importance of female romantic fulfillment and it was considered to be part of the characteristics a of the prophet muhammad to not to be a womanizer and philanderer but with your wives to make sure you cater and look after their not only their emotional physical needs and and looking after their welfare but also in the bedroom and they played great emphasis it was seen as, as considered to be a religious duty for a man to ensure that his wife is sexually satisfied so there was a lot of men inspired by traditions, Islamic tradition of the Prophet Muhammad that they were seen as in order to be a better husband, I need to master the art of seduction and lovemaking. So a number of books written by, like I said, Muslim religious scholars, um, thinkers, poets um, in the in the medieval Arab world between, particularly between the 9th and 14th, 15th century, where there are mm. a number of manuals about the art of what it means to be a man and even like womanizing as well, what it means to be a womanizer it's got different meanings and different even in the western world so for me growing up especially in originally from Nigeria to be a womanizer is doesn't always carry a negative connotation as in it doesn't mean someone who's a philanderer and someone who um misguided or deceives women takes advantage of women it's a man who he could be by way of marriage who is again has multiple wives um or could be a man who's prominent in the art of seduction and art of lovemaking so even with the at the time when I wrote it, because it was about a few years ago when I wrote it, there was a lot of reservations from, on my side that whether I should use the title "woman," um, include womanizing in the uh, in the synopsis and speak about womanizing. But then, because the target audience was men, mm. um, it was a way to capture their attention because it was written again, drawing on the sources from as far back as the ninth century from the ancient Arab and African um, traditions, and a lot of those traditions are oral traditions about the art of manliness and how to. Um, and it also speaks about sexual ethics and consent, but and it's but it says it in a way that's quite direct and targeting a male audience. Mm. Um, so that's so so because the way you speak about sex, or the way I would speak about sex, or even when I'm conducting workshops primarily to men, it'd be very different if I'm doing those conducting those workshops primarily to to, to women, just because for sure from my experience, the way men um, they're, they're likely to res and um, to resonate with certain things that I say if I speak in a more maybe direct you could say frank manner some people might even say it's crude and um, mm-hmm. maybe using a bit of, of humor and one thing i did love about a lot of the early um arab um erotology texts was not only was it ed- entertaining but it was edifying as well so they use education and entertainment so they was they have humorous um anecdotes which are funny yeah. about but it was but there was there was more there was morals behind it it wasn't just dry speaking about the legality 
of don't do this, don't do that, or do this. It was about okay, using examples, and there were they featured um, strong um, women characters um, who had their own sexual agency and challenged their male partners as well in terms of how to satisfy them on what they like in the bedroom. And I, I just I thought it was very fascinating because again, it was something that many people wouldn't expect, especially. Um, our idea of uh, Muslims or Islam being a prudish religion that is um, anti-sex or, or non-sensual um, when the funny enough, prior to much of the Muslim world um, being colonised, a lot of the Westerners looked at Muslims as being um, hedonistic people that just indulged in sensuality because a lot of the Europeans at that time were considered to be extremely prudish. So it's, it's funny how the tables have turned, whereas now a lot of Europeans and Westerners and white people are trying to understand sensuality and pursue it in different forms and a lot of the muslims um you could say have regressed somewhat um from their from their uh, from their sexual heritage mm, yeah no that's that's actually very interesting and I'm, I'm curious to hear whether in those treaties you found that i mean you touched on it slightly that the women there were some women who were kind of pushing back and challenging their partners but if we look at sort of the West, the so-called West, you know, we're, we're here speaking in the UK. I feel like, you know, we're very much as women caught between the the Madonna and the whore complex, right? So you're either, you know, pure pure as white and, you know, we see it in surveys on, on how much sex people have. Women constantly underestimate and men constantly overestimate to the point where, you know, statistically men are meant to have had twice as many sexual partners as women, except this is a heterosexual survey, so who are they having sex with? <laughs> because yeah, there's some, some numbers, there's some number discrepancies that, that just don't don't tally up. So we're sort of caught in many ways between, on one hand, this sort of pure ideal, which although there's been a lot of challenge and pushback to that by the feminist movement, I think is still quite strong. And then on the other hand, there's a sort of, you know, hypersex, pornified, you know, increasingly normalized via social media um, presentation of femininity. Um, but to me, they all feel quite passive and they all feel passive and they all feel determined by the male gaze. Was there anything in your research that takes us beyond the sort of limiting framework of women's sexuality as we conceive of it through the lens of whiteness which might allow us to think differently about female sexuality um yes there was there is a book um written in the 10th century um called joam aletha which is translated as the the encyclopedia of uh, the encyclopedia of pleasure and it's you could say it's like a an first Arabic erotic compendia um, where the author, the compiler, um, he was based in, I think, Baghdad, and he wrote about, he spent a lot of time speaking about or writing about female sexual agency and the diversity of women's sexual experiences and women owning their sexuality. And there's been a number of um, modern day scholars such as um, Pernelli and mine who wrote a really fascinating book on female sexuality. Um, looking at that particular book now what was quite interesting is that a lot of the women characters that he the compiler because it's the compiler it's, it's debated who actually was the name of the compiler of the books so i've just referred to the book as encyclopedia of pleasure but the women that were related in that book it wasn't seen so like in the western world we've got like you said this madonna or um either women are one or the other that wasn't necessarily the case in, in much of um some parts of um, the Muslim world because to have numerous sexual experiences, it didn't make a woman less chaste, so to speak, or to be um, less virtuous. Mm-hmm. Because in, in in that part of the world, or in that society in particular, for a woman to be competent in the, in the bedroom and to, in, to embrace her sensuality was part of being a virtuous woman. But again, there was, you could say, um, there was shackles placed on women in the sense of okay are you having a, are you having sex within the confines of marriage or outside of marriage and he did relay mm-hmm. women who were sexually um active both in marriage and outside marriage but I, I think one of the things especially when we're looking at historical texts is that we don't apply modern notions of morality and chastity to historical that like, previous periods and that's why it's quite difficult because there were women even like there are women in parts of Africa even today who do not subscribe to this. I'm either like Madonna or like a 
or like a, a virgin woman, so to speak. As in, I'm I'm, t- I'm stuck between one of the t- one of the two because. But then someone might ask the question. It's easy for you to say that as a man, and that's true. That even as a man, I have to question myself and be um, aware of my own blind spots. Um, and is it that women who are engaging in um, multiple um, sexual sexual partners are they liberated? Is it who's, who's to define what it means to be sexually liberated, or are they doing it under the guise under under male gaze? So that's something which um, is quite difficult for me to answer. But one thing I did find, especially with the Encyclopedia of Pleasure book, was that he showed a variety of women's sexual experiences and female agency, that it wasn't just the one or two types, that you're mm-hmm. either this married woman that's chaste and you've got limited sexual partners or you're a woman who is, quote, what we would understand today, today to be like a sexually liberated woman who's having sexual partners with multiple. And I think that I, th- I think we do women a disservice as well when we say that they're one of the two. Or when I, from when I, read, that, when I read that book, so to speak. So um, it, for me, it showed a pl- plurality of, women's sexual experiences and I think that's something which again is quite refreshing because this idea that even having all of these sexual partners or even having sex or even embracing your sensuality who are you doing it for are you doing it for society but obviously that's based on society's understanding of what is normative or acceptable practices or are you doing it for religious reasons or spiritual reasons or are you doing it for yourself so again it, it does raise the question that even in, you can challenge many people today that are engaged in, or even men as well that are considered to be sexually liberated. Are you sexually liberated because that's what you want to do, or you feel that is what's expected of you as a free woman? Mm. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's an ongoing. Uh, we we're, sadly won't be resolving that one for you guys tonight, but it's one to come back to for sure. Um, on on that note, um, I was just wondering if you you're someone who's obviously studied sex and sexuality beyond whiteness beyond the white gaze and what would you say are some of the main things that people would be missing from a restricted limited whiteness understanding of these areas what what is it that you know now that you feel would be so vital to the conversations we have in our current culture where there are just so many debates from you know porn to hookup culture to marriage and monogamy in what what are some of the gems you can you can give us that show us that whiteness has not served us uh particularly well in this field i would say rather than speaking about sex I'm concentrating on the act of sex to to reframe the conversation to speak more about sexual pleasure um, because when we speak about sexual pleasure um, as opposed to sex we can think about different experiences and acts which result in a pleasurable joyful sexual experience and there isn't as much pressure placed on penetrative sex like I said which is very difficult for women to achieve and then also when we focus and speak about sexual pleasure as opposed to orgasm then there isn't again pressure placed on both men and women because men do suffer from performance anxiety um, as well as women suffer from um, body image issues and things like that and trying to orgasm there isn't much um, pressure placed on on individuals trying to achieve x amount of orgasm whereas when you focus on sexual pleasure and sensuality and sacred sensuality as well because i think for, for maybe this is from my own religious perspective and even studying um, other cultures is that sex will seem to be something that is sacred and something that um, you do obviously that you're when you're comfortable but not with just anyone and I think that's something that has been lost in today's modern culture where sex is kind of seen as just purely for self-gratification purposes when a lot of I think the ancient cultures they were speaking not only about the physical enjoyments of sex but also the spiritual enjoyments of sex and that's not something that you'd want to kind of share with just anyone kind of thing so I think sacred sensuality and sexual pleasure they're the two key takeaways that I took from other cultures which I think is lacking in um, the western world which is predominantly just focusing on sex and like orgasm so to speak. Mm. Well okay so linked to that I was wondering is um, sexual pleasure in a traditional perspective always sacred or is casual sex also ever regarded as desirable and and I suppose connected to that if I may 
throw in the question because we live in a culture defined by hookup culture you know that's kind of like the normalized version of sexuality is is hookup culture at least for younger people um was that ever present in more traditional cultures and and can we even make generalizations with it probably very different views on it in different places I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, when we speak about casual sex, I'm assuming you, you're referring to sex, which is not, uh, I'm assuming you're referring to someone who has sex with someone that they are not committed to. I'll just put it like that rather than with You're right. Because... It should probably be important to, because obviously as Muslims, um, for those of you who are listening who aren't Muslim, for Muslims, anything that isn't marriage is basically casual right. sex. Uh, but yeah. yes, no, you're, we should define it. So yeah. let's take your definition there, which would be, sex between two people who have not made any kind of commitment to one another, which I think is quite common. Well, I would argue is probably the most common form of hookup today, but I, I haven't got statistics to back that one up. You might tell me otherwise. I, unfortunately, I don't have any statistics for um, co- um, casual sex, um, but that is something that, um, especially in the Arab Muslim world, a number of the early erotologists um, spoke about um, and they served as like the sexual commentator. So although many of the writers were Muslim and religious figures and they didn't necessarily approve of um, casual sex, so to speak, but they did speak about it, about it's prevalent in parts of um, the societies in which they resided in. But they did speak about the, some of the dangers, not only from a religious or spiritual perspective, but even a physical perspective in terms of having um, sex with people, whether it's um, contracting diseases or even um, losing the desire to enjoy sex with someone that you're committed to if you're always having, if you're always sharing your body with different people. And then there are other traditions, um, particularly in um, ancient India and and, um, and parts of ancient China where they speak about if someone has casual sex with different partners, then um, again, from their religious traditions, their spiritual disadvantages to that person. So a lot of the ancient cultures when they spoke about casual sex in particular it generally wasn't something that they were um approving it was kind of seen as something that is not a um an acceptable practice and a lot of the reason that they gave was from a religious or spiritual perspective because a lot of Mm -hmm. those cultures sex was linked to um um their religious or um, spiritual beliefs Mm. so if any of them so I'm just wondering if those um, authors, and we probably would have to get a bit specific, maybe mm-hmm. if we say if if some of the um, older ladies that you'd spoken to who have been key to teaching the practice, for example, of female pleasure, female ejaculation in Rwanda, for example, saw how we discuss sex here in the West and sexual pleasure here in the West, or in the UK in in particular, what do you think would be the main issues that they would be surprised or even shocked to discover? That's actually a very good question. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I think, I don't think they'll be too best pleased. And that was something that um, one of the reservations that I came across from a few people that I interviewed when I was doing my research about Kunyaza from African women in particular, that they considered this practice to be a, a secret, a cultural secret, and they didn't want it to be, sh- they, they just, they, they, they didn't want it to be abused. And the way Kunyaza is taught, is traditionally taught um, prior to marriage to prepare women um, and men um, before they get married. And it's also generally practiced within um, a between married couples. So it's not considered to be a practice which um, non-married people, people that engage in casual sex practice. That's not to say that people that, aren't married don't practice kunyaza or or anything like that because they do but um, that's just cultural appropriation yeah yes but the role the role and that's why when we're speaking about some of these ancient practices or like kunyaza the african women that you was referring to yeah they weren't only teaching the act the act of kunyaza or sex they were speaking about sexual ethics Mm. they were speaking about and that and i think that's something that is lost in the western world is that again because the act of sex itself anyone can do it and many people have done it but if we're speaking about sexual pleasure or sexual happiness and I'll expand that as well that to to be happy you can have sex but to be to to have really enjoyable pleasurable sex or be to be sexually happy that has to be aligned with your values and your belief systems so if for Mm -hmm. example you are 
having casual sex and you're having a relationship with someone that you're not committed to, even if you maybe orgasm, and this is for a man or woman, because you're not in a, um, you're not maybe emotionally connected to that person or you don't feel, um, you trust that person, you, the, 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 you're not going to be, you're not going to enjoy it as much as if you was with in a committed relationship, whether it's by way of marriage or what have you. So that was something that they, that they would speak about when they're speaking about sex that is sacred, like your body is sacred, be careful with who you share it with and things like that. And one of the, and I, I'm probably part of the problem to some respects, one of the problems when you're sharing this knowledge without speaking about the ethics as well, is that people would just take like the practices and forget about everything else that comes with it. So yeah. kunyaza as well, for example, it's not just about ejaculation, it's amazing. Before they speak about ejaculation, um, kunyaza, the technique, the sexual practice, they'll speak a lot about making sure that your wife feels desired and making sure you as a woman feel relaxed, making sure you feel comfortable. All of the things which are as important, if not more important than the physical act itself, emotional um, um, emotional or mental foreplay, however you want to call it, is more important and is something which, because a lot of women maybe from that culture feel entitled and feel that mm. they deserve pleasure in it when they actually engage in that act of kunyaza with their husbands, it's easier for them to um, to, to, to orgasm and squirt because they feel entitled to, to pleasure and they are with someone that they trust and love. So it's not, they haven't got a lot of the mental hangups that unfortunately which prevent a lot of women, particularly in the West, from having an orgasm. It's not that there's anything wrong with them. It's mm. maybe because they've got a lot of things in their mind or they're thinking about what he thinks of me or, or how I look and all of these external pressures that's preventing them or even like even with squirting because they're thinking oh if I um, urinate because it feels like urinate and I don't want him to shame me or whatever so I'm holding back and that's what prevents a lot of women from really enjoying themselves in the bedroom whereas women in other parts of the world because they haven't got as many um, mental pressures and they don't have these sexual anxiety anxieties that unfortunately is quite prevalent in the western world that's why probably they have maybe more pleasurable sex because they're not thinking they're not overthinking things so when we're speaking about sex, I think it's important that we speak about sex holistically rather and sexual ethics rather than just speaking about like just techniques, which again, I think is or sex positions, which again, was something that when Richard Burton translated the Kama Sutra, many mm. people forget that only 25 or don't realise that only 25% of the Kama Sutra speaks about sex positions. It's a book mm. about love, about romance. It's a, it's, it's a love guide. But when we think about it now, the way it's been translated, we've just taken the the juicy bits, so to speak, which are the sex positions. And that was because the Victorians at that time, you know, that was something that was very new to them. And they kind of threw away or they didn't consider um, the other parts, uh, the majority of the book, which is speaking about sensuality and even sacred sensuality as well, because that was, it's actually a religious book. So mm. the Kama Sutra, and I always bring up the Kama Sutra because it's a book that everyone thinks they know of or they've heard of about. Of course, yeah. You, you you don't quite understand it. I mean, that's that's a really interesting um, point, I think, first to maybe come to a close on, which is the idea that the, the sacred in some societies where that's still like the dominant framework through which people filter the world provides a unity of experience, right? You can't disassociate sex from emotions, from your um, spiritual relationships, from your, you know, feelings. Like they're, they're all interconnected under this umbrella of, of the sacred and, and, and a sort of level of accountability, I guess, for behavior that's that's linked you know you can't completely disassociate one from the other and and we've done a lot of that and in fact there's there's some great um studies looking at how western categorizations um have created uh disassociations in different areas or between even different peoples different tribes different cultures um simply by thinking of them as separate uh when they're actually intimately linked so Lots of food for thought there. Habib, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, I think maybe now is a good time to flag some of your books. Obviously, I know uh, Kunyaza, The Secret to Female Pleasure, uh, The Taste of Honey is your most recent one. Um, any others that you'd like to flag to our listeners who might be interested in learning a bit more? I would just think, to be honest, just Kunyaza and The Taste of Honey, because, again, they're like the sexually themed books, and they're the ones that most people seem to be interested in. But I speak about, like, history. I think that might bore people, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, they can can always look. Is there there a website we can direct people to? 
Oh yes, um, rabah.com, so R-A-B-A-A-H.com, so um, all my six books are, are, are there and some videos as well. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you again for that, Habib. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on YouTunes uh, or YouTunes. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Peace and love, everyone. Thank you.